This episode of the Insurance Coffee House is sponsored by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies and brokers in the UK and across the United States. Visit insurance-search.co.uk for more details. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome back to the Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get the chance to meet and learn from some of the most inspiring insurance business leaders on the planet. I'm delighted to advise that joining us for coffee today is Nick Hankin, the Global Head of Underwriting Governance at QBE. Nick's role is focused on supporting trading underwriters and CEOs in maintaining and enhancing underwriting standards across QBE's $14 billion global GI portfolio. Prior to this, Nick has enjoyed a stellar career working in senior leadership positions at several global insurance carriers, with his most recent role being the Commercial Lines Chief Underwriting Officer at Aviva. Nick, welcome to the show. I hope, first of all, that I got all of that correct. Nick, thanks. That was a really good summary. It's really nice to be on. Thanks, Nick. Can I, first of all, start by just asking you to share a little bit more about your background, the work you're doing at QBE, and also what your coffee of choice is in the morning? <laughs> Yeah, well, at the moment, because of the uh, the lockdown, I'm deprived my coffee of choice. So I, uh, I actually adore, I'm a big fan, actually, of the Pret regular 99p a day coffee, the kind of <laughs> cheap and simple. I, I always like that one. And I'm also, I do quite like a latte, but at the moment, I'm definitely in the uh, the Nescafe homebrew uh, territory. Um, <laughs> yeah, my I've, I've been really fortunate. I mean, I mean, this is going to be 25 years I've worked in GI. So I started as a graduate trainee in 1995 with... Um, with Rawson Alliance. Uh, I've had a fantastic career. I've really, uh, really enjoyed it immensely, worked with some great people um, and done some things that were really interesting and, and also very challenging. Uh, I've always uh, enjoyed taking on new roles and new opportunities. And, and the one I'm doing at QB at the moment is, is brand new. So the role didn't exist within QB before I started in March. It sits within the group chief underwriting office so we have reinsurance we have pricing we have performance management and and i'm i'm leading up the capability looking at underwriting so really working with our three major divisions which is our our north american division our, our division in australia pacific and our international division which covers the london market europe and um, and asia and working with those ceos and the underwriters to translate the group underwriting standard through to the divisions, through to the trading underwriters to help them, you know, improve their underwriting risk selection, pricing, portfolio management, and also to give assurance to the board and the regulators and other stakeholders that we are, you know, writing with an appetite and that we're kind of writing to our business strategy. So it's uh, early days, but it's a really, really enjoyable role. Thank you, Nick. And I think our listeners today will really enjoy hearing about how you set those standards and how you are going about setting that that very high threshold and that high bar for your underwriters and how you go about doing that. And so looking forward to, to hearing some further insight on that. So if I can just start off, we'll, we'll dive straight into the questions today. What do you do personally on a daily basis that helps set you up for a successful day? Yeah, I think there's a few little things that work for me, and I think they are quite individual. But for me, I sum it up as sort of being ready. So I think you have to kind of work out, you know, can you get ahead of the day? Can you think, how do I maximize this opportunity in front of me? But also 
get yourself ready to be adaptable. So things always change. So an email, a call, something else will happen in the day. And if you're if you're really ready from the start, then you can respond to that in a really constructive way rather than seeing it as a distraction or, or a disruption to your day. I tend to start really early. So I'm a morning sort of person. We've got three three children. So we've kind of over the years got used to early starts. So I tend to be up 5.30. I'll start looking at things between six and seven and start to set myself some sort of targets through the day. So I think this is particularly important in this stage when we're kind of working remotely that you need to set yourself a framework for how you're going to get and navigate your way through the day to get to the outcomes that you want. Um, So I use a lot of visualization. I use sort of what are the key outcomes? What do I want to achieve that day, that week, and into the medium term? Because the things that we work towards, like our sort of annual goals, they're they're an aggregate of all of the, the small things we do every day. So the emails we send, the calls we make, the meetings we attend, they all kind of need to build to what you're actually trying to achieve for you and your team. I think then it's important to have breaks as you go through the day. Yeah. So I take, yeah. I, I, will, I will certainly walk every day. We've got a, a little dog, so I enjoy walking her. I'll go for a cycle. You know, I, I think having something to enable you to kind of just get a different perspective and also close out the day is important. We do work in a more of a 24-7 world, but I think I've tended to try and keep a early morning and then kind of start to sort of tail off as we go into the early evening and, uh, and through. I don't, I don't think you do your best work you know, eight or nine at night in a UK timeline. Obviously, the current role, I, I, I talk a lot to Australia and Asia and the US. So some of my meetings are kind of either very early or very late. So you have to kind of juggle it a bit. Yeah. But I think how, closing how out. Find, sorry to jump in there, Nick. Just how, how do you find adapting that to the different time zones that you, that you work across? Well, I think we all have certain rhythms. So I, I find that if I'm doing a meeting really late at night, like I've done a few at nine or 10 at night, I think it's, 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 it's a bit different. So I'm a little bit more reactive than proactive. And I'll kind of try and, you know, you have to kind of communicate that to your colleagues because some of them are in, you know, the, a different part of their day. Similarly, in the morning, it's probably easier for me than, than for others. But what I've learned, even in this short period, is you can really use that time zone to your advantage. So sometimes you, you do get some genuine 24-7 working because you're you're handing over a piece of work to the Australian team and then when you wake up the next morning, it's being progressed. So that um, if, you get, if you get it in sync, that can work out well. But I do think you need to close out your day. You need to kind of reflect on what's worked, what hasn't worked and, and, and have a bit of downtime in the evening. So I try and spend some time with the family in the evening, try to do, you know, read a book, watch some telly do something a bit different i tend to be very interested in business current affairs so i'll tend to look at twitter and things like that and and look a little bit ahead but ultimately you're trying to get to the point where you can you know like michael kane used to say you know do do the day's filming have dinner have a good night's sleep and get ready to do it all again i think it's i think careers are are long-term events you know so they're not about having a really great three months or six months they're about how can you perform well year in year out and continue to improve and i think to do that you need to find a daily and a weekly rhythm that that works for you and that is you know that is balanced i think it's such a great point about closing down your day i think for a lot of business leaders that is the difficult thing to do is is knowing when to stop and put things down because there's always things to do right so no matter where where you're working in the world wherever you're working uk us across different time zones there's always things to do and there's always people who want to hear back from you on a, on a certain subject. So 
closing down for the day, I think, as you said, can help with that long-term career and those long-term goals. Nick moves us nicely on to our next question. And we understand that in order to be successful and to have a successful insurance career, there is often adversity that comes along at some stage. So what we'd like to know is what has been your biggest achievement so far to date? And also what's been the largest setback and how have you got to turn that situation around? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Isn't it? I think the things in terms of achievement, there's there's probably a couple of things I've been proudest of. I think the first is where I've mentor people or help people in their careers. So I remember mentoring someone at Aviva who was had kind of got stuck in their career at a certain level and they were going for interviews and they weren't getting the, the next promotion. And we did a lot of work over a couple of years to just work through that situation, understand it. And that person now is a chief risk officer. You know, so like actually two or three levels above the role that they were, you know, when when I was involved mentoring them. Um, so they're the sort of things that really stick with you as as achievements. I've I've enjoyed bits where I've really made a difference and a change to a business from something that wasn't done before. So I quite like things where, you know, no no one quite knows how to attack something and it's new ground. Uh, and and I suppose the proudest thing I've been is being part of strong teams. So I was part of the the GI team at Aviva that was the sort of general insurer of the year for, for five or six years in a row, had very good customer service responses, had very good profitability and, and it was a very you know strong diverse team that was fun to be part of and i think that you know, i was proud to to be part of that uh, and, and to contribute to it i think in terms of setbacks i mean the biggest learning for me it was um was actually before i even joined the industry because i graduated in 94 i did a history degree i came out the tail end of the recession the, the big 80s recession and i just couldn't get mm. and i had 30 35 different interviews in wow. banking consultancy insurance brokers reinsurers i kind of went you know i went in to see everyone and i had lots and lots of interviews and lots of you know nice feedback and letters and lots of thank you but no thanks and uh that was a really amazing learning experience because it lasted about um 12 months and i did some voluntary work at the royal british legion i went and did um a touch typing course uh, at a college right. which actually turned out to be the most useful thing ever as i spent the next 20 years you know glued glued to a keyboard but i i had to get used to it at a very early age 21 22 just being being turned down for things and i ended up being accepted on a graduate scheme at royal which had 1500 applicants and they had 18 places and i think when i got accepted on it i i valued it so immensely that from then on kind of when i actually went into the workplace and i was doing different roles i I sort of saw them very differently. And I, I worked sometimes with a lot of people who either didn't like the role or didn't like the company or, you know, I felt were a bit complacent about it. Whereas I, I think because of that experience, I always immensely valued it and liked the opportunity and the chance and, and was very keen to kind of keep that role in, in, in these amazing global organizations that, you know, that serve millions and millions of customers. So uh, I've had other setbacks back through my through my working career, but nothing probably as profound as that starting experience. And the ones I have in my working career, I tend to, I tend to try, try and you know take a walk, get some perspective, understand you know what's at the root cause of it. Because I think sometimes when you get a negative experience at work, it can just be a personality clash. It can just be. Uh, and, and an important thing to me is to try and get feedback as to is it something I'm doing? Is it just a one-off? Because if it's if it's generally something you're doing 
and two or three people tell you it, then that's really useful because you can change it. If it's just um, a personality clash or different style, then it, it maybe isn't as big a deal as it seems and you can find other ways of going around it. Thanks, Nick. The, 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 the takeaways I take from that is taking 35 interviews before being successful at that time must have really knocked your confidence, say, actually to keep going through that adversity and, and not giving up, I think will inspire a lot of people out there now who might be concerned about the economy and the way that COVID-19 situation is going to impact things. So I think that's a really inspiring thought. And also to have that humbleness and to appreciate what you've then got once you are a great company and a big corporate company and all the benefits of that, because I think it is very easy for us to take advantage and not always appreciate what we've got. So thank you so much for, for sharing that, Nick. Leads us on well to our next question, which we understand and we know that most insurance professionals fall into the industry rather than setting out from school wanting to be an underwriter <laughs> or, or an insurance broker. So what was your eureka moment when you all clicked into place and you knew you could be successful and have a successful career insurance? Yeah, I think I, I would say that I had... I had moments where even early on in my career, I, I worked for a guy called Richard Elliott in the, I would say property investors business. And I, I'd have been about 18 months into it. And, and he sort of, he said to me, Oh, well, that one day you're going to, you know, you're going to be running a office like this or running a team like this. And it, it kind of just raised my outlook and my perspective on the sort of opportunities that were in the industry. I think very early on, I figured out that it had every attribute that attracted me in the sense that it was, you know, a pretty meritocratic industry. It's quite down to earth. So it didn't feel hugely elitist. It felt like, you know, you've met a lot of people who were from non-university backgrounds who'd mm. risen to very senior roles. Mm. So I think that attracted me. I thought, well, actually, this is not, you know, this is not going to be where you, you, if you're only going to get it, get, get to a senior position if you've went to the certain school or went to a certain university. I think I like the fact that it was global. So it was a great opportunity to travel. I like the fact that it seemed to cover so many things, be it product development, pricing, you know, working with brokers and strat partners, working on, you know, very technical underwriting issues, working on claims issues, you know, and it seemed to be very connected to the real economy. Mm. So the fact that ultimately, you know, every every type of risk you were looking at, there was always an interesting story around, well, it's a plastics manufacturer and they, you know, and it was always a, you know, an aviation risk or it's, everything seemed to be actually uh, interconnected to the running of the UK economy. Mm. And when you started to hear the claim stories, you sort of got into very kind of quite moving areas of people who'd been injured at work or people who'd, you know, had very, very serious accidents or, you know, people whose business had burned down or, you know, there'd been a, a terrible flood or catastrophe. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of always, I never personally felt that idea when people said, oh, it's a really dull subject or it's a really not, because it, when you actually get into it, and I think most people, you know, who, who you know, so I think you're correct, and most people maybe inadvertently enter the insurance profession, but it's amazing how many people stay in it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and have great affection for it. So there is a, you know, it's a, uh, you, you tend to work with some really great people. You know, you tend to work on things where, you know, I find 99% of people want to, want to support you, want to help you to get on and want to help you you know, do your role. 
Um, it's not a, not a hugely political type of business. So I think there's a, you know, I never wanted to leave in 25 years. I think I wanted to get to a senior position so I could help it change because I think it needs it needs to change. It needs to modernise. It needs to reflect the the society we live in in 2020. I, I used to get frustrated when I was a young underwriter that people used to say, well, you you have to have 10 years experience or 15 years experience to get to a senior role. And I always, I always wanted to challenge those sort of preconceptions because I thought, well, if you're good enough, you should have the opportunity to to do it. And that's the way you learn. And, and that's got a lot better over my 25 years, but it's still, um, you know, there's, there's still some of that around, you know, it's still, it's been slower to adapt to technology than other industries, although things like COVID has really demonstrated that it can do that and operate. But yeah, I, I, I well, not one light bulb moment, but a sort of, you know, I, I could easily have, have, I guess, come into the industry done or two or three years and then, and then gone out if I, if it really had, had not worked for me but i think through a series of you know really good organizations and really good leadership and and people i work with it's just it's just kept encouraging me to keep going yeah that's great and that one piece of advice from your previous manager that gave you that confidence to push forward and know that actually it was achievable for yourself that that one comment that he made which maybe he doesn't even remember saying now has really helped to to influence your career absolutely absolutely i mean confidence is a huge factor and i think we'll talk about it as we go through the through the conversation but i think a lot of a lot of people don't reach their potential because of that fear of mm. trying or that fear of failure mm. and it is you know it is daunting because this is a this is real world it's business you know there is a there is a downside but having when senior people provide those little bits of encouragement they are immensely powerful yeah yeah younger certainly. people Certainly. And you mentioned um, mentors and mentorships. So who's been the most influential mentor for you and what have you learned from them? Yeah, I'm going to be quite cheeky, Nick, because as you see from my career, I've worked for lots of different organizations and there's been a number of absolutely outstanding leaders that have helped me. So I'll I'll run through them quickly. So I, I would say Amanda Blanc when I was at AXA because Amanda just had immense leadership skills you know, a really strong vision, great ability to execute, and just immense hard work. And I, so I found I found her quite an inspiring person to work with. Um, there was also another leader at AXA who I worked with, a guy called Roy Watkinson, who was the chief underwriting officer for commercial. And Roy did a thing where I was I was in my late twenties and I was looking at a risk and I was trying to work out how much capacity to retain and how much to buy factory insurance on. And Roy was sort of looking at this risk remotely and sort of supervising me. And he let me go all the way through. And I ended up retaining, I think, 20 million or something. And then at the end, he said, oh, I was like, he said, there's no way I'd have retained 20 million. I'd have like retained 10 or something. <laughs> I just thought, I just thought it was an amazing amount of leadership to sort of not jump in and say, you know, the answer is this, but yeah. to let you work your way through, make your own decision, make your answer. And then to say, look, you know, I'd have made a different one, but it's done. And I thought that was, I think that's very, very hard to do. It's quite rare as a leader to do that. I worked with a guy called Tim Mitchell at Zurich. And Tim had an amazing sort of global mindset. So he opened my eyes to working across America and Europe and and just think thinking laterally, you know, very, very inspiring um, leader. I worked with uh, Maurice Tullock uh, at Aviva. And I liked, I mean, he was the CEO, but he was extremely humble as a leader in the way that he worked with his people and his team. So we would do a lot of work getting him ready for analyst presentations or the media. And he 
absolutely never never flinched if you had a better suggestion or a different way for doing something he would always adopt it and say okay that's a good point and and then you see him take it into his actual performance and i thought that was that was great for someone that senior to be open to more junior people suggesting a different way of doing something um and probably the, the last two people i'd mention is um there's a guy called nick amin who's the chief operating officer at aviva and 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 i just learned for him just immensely high standards um, so he had a, you know, he set the bar so high and then always wanted to raise it um, and was incredibly systematic in the way he thought, um, but actually brilliant at bringing together, you know, a very, very large virtual team across many geographies, but towards a common common goal of improving something uh, and staying incredibly calm under pressure. Um, and finally, I should probably mention my current boss, who's a guy called Jason Brown, uh, who's the, who's the global group chief underwriting officer for QBE. And I think what I've learned from Jason is, you know, it, it took a long time for me to, to join QBE um, from the recruitment process. And obviously I joined in the middle of the pandemic and Jason's, Jason's gone back in, in Australia. Yeah, but he's managed to onboard me really well through the, into the business and provide me with some really good guidance around how to work, what to work on, how to navigate a new stake, stakeholder ne- network and provide me just a lot of, a lot of support with um, the group exec and the board to get my role up and running. And, okay. you know, he didn't need to do that because, you know, I've been brought into quite a senior role and he's got a very senior role, but I just thought I was just a, a fantastic leadership style that, you know, kind of doesn't matter where you are in the organization, you can still help people in your team to perform well and get the best out of their roles. So it wasn't one person, but it just kind of shows you that, you know, you, you I've always learned from these people because they're just fantastic practitioners and I also have learned from people who aren't so good, mm. so I won't I won't name them. <laughs> but I've let you, I think you learn you learn from the how sometimes how people approach things, and you think, well, actually, that hasn't worked, and I wouldn't have done it like that, and that wasn't the best way of kind of bringing people together. So I think there's a real learning for me about just be aware of not just what you're doing, but what's going on around you, because you're getting a chance to see people who are, you know, re- really strong in their fields at all different levels in an organisation, and you can always take take stuff from them and adopt it into some of your style. I think you've got a really great mix of people that you've pointed to there, but the, the common theme seems to be about setting high standards, but also yeah. having that humbleness. And I think that humbleness is sometimes something which business leaders find difficult to equate with high standards at the same time and, and balancing that because sometimes it can show an element of weakness. Yeah, well, I think you've got to be realistic about, you know, it, it would be amazing if people, you know, knew the answer to everything and, mm. you know, could because as you get more senior organization, you're inevitably what you're, what you're trying to do is go into areas that haven't been solved before or that are really challenging. Yeah. So, you know, our response to the pandemic is not something that, you know, we can look back at what happened in 1918, but you haven't exactly got a playbook for how to, you know, you're navigating it day to day. So I think you need to have confidence and assurance and, to get people to follow you as a leader, but you also need to be able to say, look, I really just don't know how to approach this and we need to think about this differently and what other ideas can I bring in and and, and also where have I got something wrong and maybe I need to fix it and maybe I, I need, I, you know, that should have been top priority and I put it at number five and yeah. you know, everyone's got their own blind spot. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's it's being prepared to look, to ask, ask the obvious question is sometimes the most powerful one. And that's going to be very important going forward over the next three to five years if if you had a crystal ball now how would 
you predict the insurance business landscape developing over over the next three to five years? And how do you think insurance business leaders should adapt to be successful in these times? Yeah, I think there, I think there's two parts. I think there's a, there's a number of different trends that impact insurance. I think the political environment is becoming a bigger factor than it has historically. Um, and I just think because you know there, there's there's a lot of global political trends, social media, you know the the, the expectations of business are shifting quite fundamentally. Mm. So you know from when I started, where you know probably most leaders' primary focus was you know, on the customer and on profitability and shareholder returns. Now it's just a huge, hugely more diverse breadth of things that leaders are required to help their organization navigate through. And they're changing, they're changing very quickly as well, depending on the way that the, the, the news agenda is changing. I think customer trends are, uh, are changing, disruptions changing, uh, technology disruption is changing, what we can do and what we need. So there will be some new entrants, there will be more cloud computing, analytics, artificial intelligence, robotics, all of these things create opportunities and threats to existing insurers particularly. And then I think that the the employee expectations are evolving a lot as well. So as new partly as new generations come into the workplace, their expectations are maybe radically different to when I joined in terms of, you know, 48 weeks, uh, nine to five sitting at a desk in an office yeah. is is probably, you know, uh, is, is a historic relic. And so you know, how you adapt to that, how you adapt to what they look for in terms of diversity and inclusion, how you respond to them in terms of what they want for well-being, things like mental health. You know, I think leaders will have to lead a lot more by persuasion mm. and by inspiration than by position. So just rocking up and saying, you know, here's my, you know, I'm a, I'm a group head of underwriting governance. That will only take you, you know, that'll take you so far. But, you know, ultimately people are rightly, I think, a lot more, challenging about you know what you bring what you bring to each meeting and each conversation and this pandemic has accelerated that trend because it's a great leveler out because we all we all go on to teams or to zoom and and it's you know we're all wearing a t-shirt and jeans and and so some of those kind of like old status symbols of you know who's got a different type chair and who's got an office and who hasn't got an office and you know they're, they're, they're stripped away and i think that's a very positive thing but it also presents a you know, uh, a challenge for a challenge for leaders in terms of how they engage their engage their teams. So to answer your second point, uh, a question. I the, the the thing I've used, which I think I've used with a lot of people I've coached and mentors as well, is I, I try and uh, simplify it down to sort of three things that I kind of work on. So I try and think on what capability do leaders need. So what skills and knowledge and experience do they have. What do they need to do to really be able to perform in the role that they're going into. What motivation do they have? So both their personal motivation, you know, how, how well do they understand that and how well are they, how good are they at kind of motivating their team? Um, and then I think the third thing leaders really need is, is a focus on reputation. So their personal reputation, their team reputation, their organization's reputation, and what are they doing to positively enhance that and to build that? And I've tended to use those three things with myself and with leaders because I think otherwise there's a lot of self-help books and lots of courses you can go on and to try and work out what the the, the key elements are and i found those three things are very applicable because people can work out where their current skills are where the gaps are they can work out what motivates and doesn't motivate them and they can also work out well how how good am i at promoting my own personal reputation and brand how good am i in terms of my team in a large organization you know a team is always 
you know, there's 20,000 employees and you, you might lead a team of 50. Well, it's a big team, but, mm. you know, how, how is it positioned in an organization? And then, you know, what, what really am I doing with the, with the wider business in terms of and the industry in terms of promoting, you know, the reputation of, of what we do? I think it's such a great insight onto personal branding and personal awareness. I think your market's going to throw up a lot of challenges over the next few years. So it's very important that, that people, people have that and align themselves with teams and with organizations which have a great reputation and are successful in delivering for their customers and, and key stakeholders. I think uh, with, with social media, personal branding and reputation is more important than ever and people, people can be tarred rightly or wrongly, by, by the same brush of the organization or the way their, their team has managed a certain situation. So I think that from future career point, I think that's incredibly important. As our listeners know, the next round is the espresso round. <laughs> uh, the espresso round is it's short, sharp and straight to the point. Nick, I know you said you're, you're normally a 99p Pret-a-Manger uh, coffee drinker. Well, on this round, we're going to be shooting with with a double shot of espresso. The espresso round. To kick us off, what is your favourite success quote? Okay, so I um I I love recent documentary on um, Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, and there was a quote in that which said, "You're only successful in the moment you are completing a successful act." Right, which is a I, I just love that quote because it's literally like almost what's gone before is history. Is are you being successful? in the moment what you've got to do i think I, I i love that and there's also there's also a leadership quote that i like which is leadership is turning around and seeing if anyone is following you mm. which again i like because it's sort of it, it i use it a lot to think when i'm trying to set up something new if i was in other people's shoes would they be inspired do they understand what we're trying to do would i be motivated to do it not just am i personally you know up for the challenge so i, I i'd quote those two Fantastic. I know the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan in particular has a lot of great success quotes. He talks about the harder he works, the the luckier he gets and yeah. the more risk he takes that putting him in opportunity to fail, he achieves more success. I think it's it's really inspiring stuff. And if you think if that's the way he lives his life, then we can certainly learn from that. And what is the number one thing you see holding back? insurance professionals from being more successful yeah uh, i think i think i i think it's something to do with resilience so when i when i've mentored people I, I talk quite a lot about the concept of being selfish and selfish is a really horrible word but it's quite an edgy word and useful word for career conversations because i think you do have to be at certain points be really selfish about what do i need to do to develop myself and my career to get to my potential and to get to what I want to do. Because although organizations are pretty good at training and development and they'll try and help you, if you're not really thinking about that and allocating time to it, it just won't happen. And I just say to a lot of people at Aviva that you go, you know, you can go through a whole year and do lots of things around the goals for your manager and your business, and that's all fine. But if you look at the end of the year and say, well, I just didn't do my technical training, or I didn't do that project that was going to develop me, or I didn't do anything externally, or well then really you're the person who has suffered in that respect it's not aviva it's not the customers it's not the it's not the shareholders it's kind of a very personal thing so i think being being selfish 
don't lose not losing confidence building a bit of a, a network around you so that you can take these challenges and feel confident if they're difficult. So I'll give you one final example. It's, it's surprised me as I've gone through my career that a lot of people opt out of opportunities. So if you take the, the, the opportunity of presenting to a board, now I always thought that was like, I, I was, you know, I sort of really want to do that because, you know, not many people get the chance to do that. And if someone says to me, you've got a chance to do it, I'd be like, well, I'm going to be nervous, of course, but I'm going to bite their hand off to try and do it. And I'm, I was amazed how many people would try and subtly not do that and avoid it for lots of reasons. But ultimately, there is a risk and reward. And if you don't do it, of course, it's difficult the first time, but the 10th time, it's a lot easier. And so I see a lot of people, even at quite senior levels, opt out of those opportunities. And I think it's part of fear of fear of failure with your peers, fear of it not going well, something about you know, kind of lack of resilience. Um, so I, I think that actually holds people back from being really successful i think a lot of people will be successful but if you're if you're really honest with yourself and saying what's the what's my absolute potential and what's the real level i could get to over my whole career um i think a lot of people get kind of 80 percent of the way there because they get to a point where it's comfortable they've had one or two bad experiences at the level above and they thought well, i don't want to do that again and they haven't really got a support network around them to push them and say go and have another try because you'll find that actually, and that's why a lot of organizations have difficulty with succession planning because they just haven't got the, the pipeline of people who are ready to step up to those next one or two levels up. It gets quite shallow when it should actually be quite, it should be packed full of people because you know it's such a, it's such a great opportunity. So, so it's a quite a long answer, always back to the long round there, but you kind of get get the sense of what I was coming from. Yeah, I think that's, that's certainly the, the Starbucks grande double latte uh, answer for, for that one, Nick. But, but <laughs> that's great anyway. That's great. And just to embellish on that further, I think, I think that's great takeaway. So number one, time for self-improvement and improving your own skills. And I wonder whether you think that can be the case outside of your career as well. So dedicating time to, to sports or to foreign language and, and things like that and actually improving yourself personally, which is going to help you in your career down the line but also that opt-out that even very senior people go through and that links really well to to the Michael Jordan quote and I think he also talked about even though everybody praised him for being the highest point scorer in the NBA he also said he had the stat for missing the most amount of shots in the NBA so it's incredible really the more you put yourself out there the more chance you've got of failure but the the more chance you've got of success as well so indeed how do you drive forward the standards of the insurance industry at QBE? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of things. I do I do a lot of work with the CII. So I, I'm part of their professional standards committee and their society for underwriting professionals. And in both of those, we get the opportunity to look at a macro level at the sort of the how the profession is doing. So on things like public trust and on the underwriting side, on sort of the big thematic underwriting issues. And that's good because that's looking a bit more objectively at, at how we're doing across all different um, sectors. And then within um, within QBE, it's really one of our values is around technical ex- expertise. So it's sort of working with, you know, the governance teams, working with the underwriting teams on, you know, what's what's working within different underwriting processes and practices, and, and finding ways to, you know, provide the right interventions to help people um, 
get better and you know using using tools like we do a lot of things like peer reviews where people will you know sit with colleagues either at the same level or more senior colleagues and try and understand you know what what worked well what didn't work well in underwriting and that's often a great way to uh, uh, to drive up standards because a lot of a lot of the way you learn is through doing things and a lot of way you improve is by like my example with with Roy Watkinson at AXA, it was you know learning from someone who had you know 25 years experience and I had you know four or five and and getting some of his thought processes into my thought processes. So so those those are sort of things, Nick. Fantastic. And in terms of developing talent and maximising the chances of people becoming successful insurance business leaders. How does QBE go about assisting with that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I think has been immensely impressive about QBE in the, in the three months I've been there is they took the opportunity for the during the pandemic and with people working at home to sort of think very differently around learning and development. So, and this was for, this was for the leadership population, but they said, you know, you tell us what are the sort of areas that you you feel you want to have some development and a lot of them were in things like artificial intelligence, digital, cloud computing. And then they partnered with, you know, some of our business partners, so be like Microsoft and Accenture, and have run a, a, some quite high value training courses through through Teams to just to give you some learning and development while you're at home, you know, working remotely. And that and that it kind of reinforces as well the idea that, you know, you've got you, the world is changing very fast and you need to keep exposing yourself to new skills and ideas that you you know maybe haven't had in the past so so that's been that's been one example that i think's been, been been pretty good fantastic and finally in our espresso round if you woke up tomorrow morning with all of the knowledge and all of the experience you have now but your company wasn't there aside from picking up the phone to me and asking to <laughs> find you a new role how would you go about starting again and what steps would you take to build a new career in insurance? Yeah, so I, I, I find LinkedIn completely invaluable. So I've got, uh, I've got almost 5,000 contacts on LinkedIn now. I'm sure I don't know all of them, but I've got <laughs> you know, a fair few of them I, I do know from all different walks of life. And so I think if, if the organization wasn't there, I would, I would start working through that and effectively offering you know, it's my, my time and support to different people for different projects. The the way you could make a difference, and I think that would be that would be a lot of fun because you could kind of go in and work on things short term that that needed helping without a kind of necessarily, you know, any bigger agenda. I think the other thing I'd look to do is um, kind of almost like free mentoring and career development work. So I think one of the things through our conversation has been you can hopefully tell how enthusiastic I am about helping people develop their careers, but also how much I benefited that from that myself. And so I could, you know, I'd certainly enjoyed, enjoy doing that. And I've done some things on, you know, outside of the insurance industry with sort of Kent University where, you know, you can bring some of the skills you've developed in terms of risk management and you can bring them to a much smaller, smaller organization that sits outside insurance and just help them with some of the things they're working through. So I think that, that would be the sort of way I'd approach it. Fantastic. Nick, I'd like to thank you so much for your time today. Your insights and advice have been 
really invaluable. Just on a final note, what one piece of closing advice would you give to our listeners and how would they go about reaching out to you after the show? Yeah, so I'm really happy for anyone to contact me. Again, the best way to do it is on LinkedIn. Um, so it, it, it's a really great way of, of keeping in touch. Uh, I look at it really regularly. I think in terms of the um, advice, I'm going to be cheeky again and, and probably give two two bits. So the first one would be own your career development. So get into the mindset from day one that it's, you know, there really is only one person who's accountable for what you do and how well you do it. If you If something's not working, change it. If you don't like something, speak up. But don't rely on, you know, your boss, your organization to help you navigate what will be a really zigzag type path for your career. So I think own it, own it personally. Um, and my, my second one is never give up. So think of it as that it's a, it is a marathon, not a sprint. It's 25, 35, 40 years. There will be ups and downs, you know, and it's, it's nothing personal, but never give up. Nick, that is absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure our listeners are go away today thinking about how they can own their career development further, be successful and, and get to those opportunities that they want to get to. Nick, thanks again so much for your insight and your sharings with us today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the opportunity. And to all our listeners out there, whether you're based in the UK, the US or across the world, we thank you for listening today and we hope you've gained some great learning and taking away some great advice with you. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider and make sure that you subscribe to the show so that you receive each one of our pods directly into your inbox each week. Till next time, I've been Nick Hoadley and this has been the Insurance Coffee House. Take care. You've been listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader. Available to download or subscribe now.